people are hopeful in addition to realistic about the risks and the circumstances. And I do have the sense that a new generation of leaders is being born right now in this moment. I do think we're getting a little taste of what our, our ancestors might have felt. I can't even imagine it going back to work tomorrow. That's crazy. It's Saturday, April 18th, 2020. Yesterday, we hosted and recorded a panel discussion. The topic reviewed was life under the pandemic. Same thing we've been talking about for weeks and weeks. This time though, it's addressed from the point of view of young adults. Each a student meant to graduate next month. Their lives have been turned upside down. Graduations canceled, told to move out of their dorms, not knowing whether or not the jobs they've just accepted will be there, not knowing whether or not they're going to be moving across the country, fearful for their health, fearful for their family's health, and generally just looking forward as young adults, what next? I was moderately surprised and in fact intrigued to find that events that were important in my life, 9-11, stock market crash of 2008, came up in the discussions more than once. I found it interesting that, and I guess I should have been surprised, that 9-11 was taught in middle school. The crash of 2008, although they were not yet teenagers when it actually happened, did leave a mark. You know, the pressure on family life, the turmoil in the economy in the country left a mark. So I wondered out loud and brought up in the discussion whether or not they thought that this moment in time, the pandemic, would be their mark, their point in history from which they will mark their life from. Future events in reference to 2020, very similar to what World War II, Vietnam, or the March on Washington did for previous citizens. With that as backdrop, sit back, strap in, enjoy the discussion. Before we get to it, though, I want to comment briefly on the CARES Act and what's transpired over the last few days. In essence, the programs authorized under the act, the loans, the grants, and I'm not yet sure about the unemployment insurance, but the loans and grants, uh, the pools of capital have run dry. The wells dry, there's no more money. It doesn't mean that Congress won't reappropriate But in the interim, 
It's just been a poorly executed plan with holes and places that I think are going to, to come back to haunt us over time. I don't want to yet say that laws were broken or unfair preference was offered. But if they were allocating resources, allocating loans, taking applications from only their business customers and only the most profitable business customers received funds through the program, then the door is open for a whole slew of questions and investigations and all of that, which will come in due time. In the short run, what we really need is enhanced funding from Congress and a more substantial and correct allocation of funding. We won't go deeper into these issues tonight, but we'll come back around to it in a couple of days. There are a whole host of issues to be addressed and examined as we move towards resolution. Please start with Noah, who I know will be, or should have been graduating from Harvard and off to somewhere or another. Yes, sir. So I'm yes. Noah. I'm a current senior at Harvard College, studying medieval studies and folklore and mythology. Uh, my next job will be as an intern at Activision, playing game design. I'm Tori. I'm graduating uh, in about a month, hopefully, uh, with my master's degree in design from Ohio State University. And I'm currently in Ohio, but will be at some point moving to uh, Nevada, California, where I will be working for 2K Games as a motion capture stage technician on their mocap stage. Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm a current uh, graduating senior at USC studying interactive entertainment at the School of Cinematic Arts. I'm 22 years old. I'm about to be 23. I'm Max. I'm 22 years old, a senior at Boston College. I'm studying political science and English to be graduating this May. And my next position is a paralegal job at Proskauer Rose, which is a corporate law firm in Boston. You guys scared or worried about anything? I would say that I'm just a little, I wouldn't full on say scared. Like there's a little bit of, of, um, uncomfortableness in the sense of, I don't know when my job is going to be starting at this point because they, it is a position where they don't want to train me remotely. So that's the only real concern that I have, um, in the sense of like what my future is looking like. Yeah, I think that I would probably echo um, some of that uncertainty about like start dates. I know that for those of us who have been lucky enough to secure employment during this looming recession, depression, um, there's a lot of uncertainty about like when we're starting. I know some folks are starting in February, which is like, okay, what am I going to do with my life for six months? So I think that that general feeling of apprehension is something I share as well. For me, it's mostly I'm I'm scared about my health because I take medicine that suppresses my immune system because I have an autoimmune disorder. I'm 
scared or I've gotten better but I'm definitely scared of just like going outside in general and I, and I don't want um, to get sick and be uh, someone's burden at a hospital right there is definitely I think a sense of I think there's there's increased danger to one's livelihood like as we've all talked about sort of questions of uncertainty around um, employment and housing but I think the thing that for me has been the most concerning is exactly Michelle what I think you were talking about which is like the increased danger to one's life right in terms of like obviously people who have pre-existing conditions who have various immune disorders um, are at a higher risk but obviously there are also reports of folks who have no pre-existing conditions no understand um, who have who have very quickly perished um, sort of in the course of this this illness and so I do think that sort of lingering fear, right? I mean, I, I've seen a lot of pundits compare this to things like the 1918 Spanish flu or the bubonic plague, and a little taste of what our, our ancestors might have felt of, of sort of, it, it feels to a certain extent doing things that were, were entirely normal, you know? I mean, in our case, you know, six, I mean, not even six months, a month and a half ago, um, are now sort of, come come contingent on sort of like how much risk are you willing to to put into that again not only for yourself but also for for the people around you it's very exactly. it's very unreal in, in a lot of ways i think like fuzzy situation of i'm not in panic mode yet but i would like some answers yeah i i echo that for sure yeah. did you I, actually I get a stimulus check that. And do you mean the, do you mean yes. the twelve hundred dollars? I would add that a lot of college students um, actually are not included under that, especially. Or I mean, people who I guess were independent from their parents, but like I know in my case, my parents claim me as dependent, and for a lot of my friends too. So we're actually not included in that category of people who are receiving that stimulus. Yeah, it's like this funky, like this like weird group between like seventeen and like twenty three. There's like articles written on it because I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna get it or not. We can count you as the first person I really. I felt like very lucky, but you know, as a college student, it's going right back on that credit card. So (laughs) (laughs) talk to me about student loans. Uh, You know, from my generation. You know, we look at you guys and, and talk for us as well. You guys are very overburdened and it's a monstrous number. Is that an accurate assessment? And how do you feel individually about loan burden? Are you carrying them or were you able to get scholarships? So, I can speak from the position of someone who is very fortunate to go to an, like a school with pretty incredible largesse. And I say this not as a um, sort of self-promoting but as I mean truly like it's it's um, a, a wonderful wonderful opportunity to go to a place that has the kind of resources that Harvard does for for this school as well as most of the Ivies um, and, and many other schools it's um, a need blind need met financial aid system so unlike other schools where you do have to apply for grants and, and various other sort of vying for financial aid um, at Harvard University, you you fill out your application. They determine the sort of need that you have, and they fill that need. Um, and so, I'm very fortunate in that I have only a few thousand dollars of loans um, after my after my four years. So that's definitely something that I'm. It's it's interesting, um, sort of what you're talking about in that uh, at the at the moment where as seniors, we're all starting to think, hmm, those are numbers that actually mean something for my immediate and long-term future. Um, but I recognize that that's in large part due to my own privilege and, and um, fortu- you know, fortunate circumstances. 
I'm the only one on the call who's been to college for seven years. <laughs> um, uh, so my my undergrad uh, was Savannah College of Art and Design, which is, I believe, if not the most, like one of the most expensive colleges in like the world. Um, and so the amount of debt that I have from that school, 100% worth it. Like my education has taken me to wonderful places, but um, yeah, it's something that has a, it's a lot and it is a little worrying where I am very um, fortunate in the sense that my parents have helped me with that. But when I decided to go to grad school um, of the schools I got into, I picked the one that offered me a full ride. Um, So I've been going to Ohio State for free, but with that, I still took out student loans, even though they offered me a job and I've been working for them and I, I get a stipend with them and my education is free. I still took out loans, those on top of my undergrad ones, which uh, will start to have to pay back, I think, within the next six months. Um, so it's a little it's a little worrisome, but um, definitely worth it. But again, kind of like what Noah was saying. Um, I understand like the privilege that I had in order to go to such a wonderful undergrad. Um, but yeah, I, again, I had scholarships with that as well. So, um, it's just kind of like this balance beam of some parts of it hurt and some parts of it don't. So, you know, to sort of continue on this, um, theme of loans and privilege, um, I'll also say that like my institution, um, is actually fairly generous with their uh, financial aid. And I was able to get, you know, pretty much a full ride um, to, to school. And what wasn't covered was covered by loans. And I think that part of like earlier what I was saying about leaving the bubble was me realizing like after I had left college and started to look forward to my future, like retroactively realizing, wow, I am very privileged because that's not something I thought about. Like while I was at school, it was kind of like, oh, like I'll take out this loan, you know, and it'll cover the expenses. But, you know, actually sitting down and taking like the exit interviews for my loans, which I did recently, I, I guess I sort of realized there are some people who are literally drowning in debt. And that's just like not me. Tori, I think you said to me yesterday that this is like the pandemic of hitting initially you thought you were hitting pause on life and then at some point you realized no we're actually hitting stop does that ring true to all of you guys sorry could you kind of say what you mean by that i I really i would be interested to hear sort of what your thought process was uh yeah Uh, so what i said yesterday is essentially i like gave it like this an analogy of like watching a movie to where when we first got the announcement okay everybody going to quarantine for a couple of weeks it's like hitting the pause button like in a movie like if you're watching one at home, you're like, okay, let me go to the bathroom. I come back and I press play. And that was like our two week period. But like, as this continues, we're actually realizing like, no, like things need to stop. And we don't know like when the movie is going to play again. We haven't had like um, any real, you know, this is an end date to this. There is, there is no expiration. Like we just have to, to wait and see. So I think that's kind of what I was getting at. Right. I, yeah, I think that's an interesting... Go ahead, Rochelle. Oh, sorry. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that's an interesting sentiment because I, I, I see where you're coming from, from the point of view of, wow, we, we haven't been able to go outside for like a month now. This is crazy. Or like engage in social activities um, in person. Um, and I, I feel like... I, I feel like life hasn't stopped, though. Like, I, I feel... 
uh, that, you know, we're still working or a lot of people are, you know, fortunate enough to work from home. Um, people are working from home. They still have their meetings. Um, people are still having their social gatherings over Zoom or, or Discord or Skype or whatever. Um, you know, uh, p- classes are still going on. Like, I, I don't know. Life doesn't feel like to me it's stopped or it just feels like it's different. You know, I'll, I'll chime in just to say, actually, Noah, do you want to say something? I know that you, earlier you. Yeah, no, I, I was, I was going to say, I think that's, uh, that's a, a very considered way to look at it, uh, Michelle, and it gives me some, some, uh, optimism. I would say that I do think that there are things I would hope, honestly, that will never be the same again. Um, I do, I do think that this is a, uh, inflection point in sort of the, the curve, the arc of history, as it were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I, I guess, really, not, not even so much I think, because honestly, I've, I've been so wrong about what I think will happen in the past that I think I should stop making prognostications. But um, I would be surprised and, like, truly kind of outraged if, if things just kind of completely normalize after after the incredible amount of disruption that we've had. I mean, if you think about it, pretty much the entire world has been on pause or stop or, or whatever you want to call it for, you know, six weeks, right? Just about. Um, and it may, it may go longer and it probably will go longer, right? And, and then there's, there's all sorts of um, predictions about the second wave coming maybe in the fall or that this will become like a seasonal kind of, kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know. I just feel like there is there is some kind of fundamental change in that. Like some things might stop. Like we might start we might stop shaking hands, for example. I think that's one thing that I, I view as I think potentially kind of trite, but would represent a pretty significant like sea change mm-hmm. in like sort of imagine like you know I've actually really noticed this where you know how like TV episodes are coming out um, that were filmed obviously before the pandemic. And you see, like, Andy Samberg, like, touch Terry Crews on the face in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and you're like, that's not okay, you can't do that. <laughs> um, in, a, in a way that is, so I think in some ways it is, it, it will present, I think, an absolute roadblock to certain kinds of behavior, at least for the near future. That's, that's what I think will happen. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. You know, I was going to say that it, it this this sense that like things are on pause, I think I would agree with what Noah says is is wrong in that it does feel like we're moving towards something new. And I think that I think is part of this feeling of generalized anxiety a lot of us are sort of conveying. And also that my feeling is that we're sort of living in this suspended sort of half reality right now, like not to be too poetic or dramatic about it, but really like like obviously anxiety rates of anxiety and depression are going up like they're predicting that there will be spikes in, in bipolar disorder and in, in domestic violence and, and things like that and, and to act like this is sort of like a new normal like this is life 2.0 life inside like i think is wrong and i think that there is something like to grasp in that this is not just our regular lives moved inside this is something new entirely that is honestly kind of like sick and weird in some ways i think um Mm -hmm. and yeah i I would just that's that's something that like i think is important for me to sort of like hold on to also do you think if if i'm if i may um, 
do you think uh, that it's that impulse of like um life is is sort of stopped or that there's like because i think let me let me put this in a different way i think i think what michelle is talking about is not that like this is the new normal but just that think things might go back to no- normal eventually whereas yeah. i wonder max what you would say about like this idea of things being stopped is part of why we see this i think almost incessant kind of continual asking of public health officials like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks about like when will things go back to normal and sort of what we're seeing in different states about like this rush to reopen things do you think yeah. that part of that feeling of like you know oh my god we must reject this new normal is sort of what's behind a lot of these impulses well i mean like i would almost go so far as to say as it's like to call it a new normal would be kind of misleading because there's nothing normal about it right and i guess that what i'm saying is that we can sort of hold in our hearts this idea that like things should not be like they are and I, that's where i agree with you noah and that we are moving towards some sort of seismic shift in our society like it or not you know um but but again i i, I do think that this reality we're living is not just a different version but like something different altogether right You know, I was going to say, I wonder if this is where the optimist and the pessimist split. The, the mention of, you know, of this being a, a a time or a point of demarcation, and I want to focus on that for a minute uh, to give you a little bit of perspective for, you know, my generation. I was in graduate school during the L.A. riots and the Rodney King riots, and our graduation and finals were canceled. So similar in that sense, you know, not worldwide, but it affected Los Angeles. And then the next point in my life was 9-11, where I spent time between New York and San Francisco. And it is another point in time that you know, I'll never forget. And it did change everything in numerous ways. Uh, do you all think that this is one of those times for your life? And has there been any other event in your collective lives that stands out as that important or life-changing for society um i guess i'll start um i think this is huge (laughs) like for every for everyone who's living in it right now this is huge um we've had you know these kinds of viruses outbreaks ebola swine flu we've had this before um but not to this extreme where everyone was, the whole world was quarantined um, to flatten these curves to stop the spread of disease. We've never had anything like this in our, in my, in my lifetime, in our lifetimes, in my parents' lifetimes, um, th- that has had this much of an impact and probably will, like Noah has said, that will have as much of an impact when this is over. You know, we're going to have a new we are going to have a new normal of how we greet each other, how we how we um, engage in work. You know, how now a lot of things that are like I can I can do a lot of work from home. I don't I don't need to be in the office all the time. Just these these little things that we didn't we didn't really think about before uh, are going to change um, because of the impact of this event. Like I think this is probably going to be taught in history books. You know, like I, once you know whenever I have kids, you know they're going to probably ask me, Hey, I'm learning about the coronavirus outbreak. How, what was it like for you, like living in that? And you know, I'm gonna have to recall from a journal, like what I was feeling at that time, or, or how it impacted me, 
how it impacted the world, the job market and everything. So uh, this is definitely a huge event. Um, something similar, maybe it would be maybe the stock market crash in 2008, even though that didn't mm. really affect us in particular, but it would have affected yeah. our parents, which in turn would you know trickle down to us. Um, I was very young when 9-11 happened. The only thing I remember from that day is my is my mother picking me and my sisters up from school early and taking us home. Um, and I, you know, I learned about 9-11 throughout my years of school. Like I was even in a middle school play about 9-11 uh, for I think it was the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Um, but yeah, I think these are the major events that we've come into contact with. And this is probably the biggest yeah i also think that i have this sense that i've never been part of a moment in history as big as this and truly like the the specific like class of 2020 i think is is um involved in a really unfortunate and unique way as well because we're literally like the like you know the the front line of the next like generation of adults right like that's who we are. Mm-hmm. We're graduating, entering the world, and so we're we're poised to be, I think, really profoundly affected by this. And that's certainly not lost on me. I think it's it's um, really interesting and, and useful, Tom, that you um, you brought up the Rodney King riots because I think that as much as these are um, different historical events, obviously originating from entirely different sort of sources. I do think that the kind of question of impact on the larger society is similar in that um, these historical events are forcing us to confront um, systemic issues with sort of the large, not only our own sort of American society, but I think also with the world at large um, in in a way that is kind of going to be, I mean, I was going to say impossible to ignore. I think it will be it will be possible to ignore with enough sort of tradecraft and um, oppression of of information. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I think what it's shown us, and I was reading a lot about this in, in the first few weeks of the pandemic. Um, I think Amazon, the sort of Amazon system of the just in time uh, supply chain, is extraordinarily efficient, but also very fragile. Um, and I think we saw that in a really big way when the pandemic hit. You have disruption even before it came to America, right? There were disruption of supply chains in China as factories shut down. Things were not moving. Shipping containers full of all kinds of consumer goods were not moving across the ocean, et cetera, et cetera. If they were, it was on a much reduced schedule. Um, and you started to see the ripple effects. For example, this is a, a single example that is of a... Uh, specific consumer good, but I think that it probably generalizes fairly well. The Nintendo Switch has been sold out for months and will be sold out into the summer. There are no Nintendo Switch, literally none. You can go to any distributor. They do not have them. Part of the reason for that is folks are scalping them. Um, Sure. Let's talk about that because you use the word um, fragile. Now, I would use the word fragile or the phrase fragile and costly. And this takes us to the discussion of, you know, does it make sense to have a supply chain where you can get the cheapest goods, say, made in China, if we run into a problem like this and we may not be able to produce drugs here or 
other goods that are important to the society. Was the trade, was it a bad trade? Uh, so, so sort of this, this question of shifting production overseas versus sort of a more intense kind of national effort kind of, kind of production? Mm. Well, and, and well, national I, I think security, that, if, I, if I can chime in, I think your institutions are what protects against this kind of thing, right? And I don't think that globalization or like the global supply chain is bad, like per se. Um, if your institutions are like robust enough to prevent this kind of crisis from happening on a large scale, I mean, like that—that's my like opinion on this because I, I really do think that like there was a spectacular failing. On the part of the administration, like I'll show my political stripes, I guess for a moment, um, and and I think that that really contributed, like to to the economic breakdown in part as well. Right. So let let me interject. Let's take a product like a, let's just say an automobile. If ten percent of the parts are made in China, as an example, I don't want to pick on China. Pick. You know, Vietnam, Mexico, Canada—it doesn't matter. And we get into a conflict, and that 10% is no longer available to us. Now we can no longer make automobiles or tanks, planes, whatever it is, and we have a real problem. So I would argue that we there, there's a cost to things. And yes, I too, uh, Max, grew up with the idea that globalization is a good thing. But I think we failed as a society to properly prepare for certain things. Yeah, does, does, I, I think I see what you're saying, and I think that, but th there's still a role the government plays, right? In like, in like the flexibility of some industries, right? Like, what is is Ford making N95 masks now, for example, or was that just an idea that was thrown around? But like, you know, I mean, I mean, like that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, I saw on Facebook, like there are vodka distilleries that switch gears and are making hand sanitizer now. So I think there's a great deal more um, flexibility and and creative solution making to be pursued in in the face of a crisis like this. But I don't know. I also I, I don't have much experience in this kind of thing. So I'd be interested to hear what other people I, think as well. I, I also think that one of the interesting things we can use um, not automobiles but ventilators, right, as an example. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting is that in the it, it's sort of different models of of healthcare, right? Um, if if you have like a for profit business, it really doesn't make a lot of economic sense to stockpile ventilators in the event of like a plague, right? This is why, in my personal view, it's the role of the government to do that kind of capacity building because it is in the government's interest to put the money in to make sure that its populace does not die. Right. Even economically speaking, like the hit to GDP of like X number of people dying is not good. Right. You don't want people dying from a pandemic. It, it, there's like there's literally no argument, which is what's ridiculous about. I know um, I believe it was the Indiana governor talking about like we just have well, to let people die so we can restart the economy, which is ridiculous because there's a, a pretty significant like hit to GDP from from any significant right. uh, loss of life in the workforce. Employees dying. But so, so to your to your point. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so let me inter. Go ahead, please. I was going to say, let me interject just to, to move things along a little bit. So, the, there's a uh, theory of economics, Adam Smith, that says, you know, there there are three things that have to happen, uh, or that should happen in a functioning society. There's three roles of government. Right. One is um, a system of laws, social order. Two is 
social goods, roads, highways, and the third is national defense. And if when any of these pillars are you know missing or out of order, society fumbles. And I, I think that's what we're talking about a little bit. And the debate over you know the role of government and what should be provided and traded off. I, a little bit, yeah, I think so. I, I was just just to sort of finish finish my thought. Um, so we can move fully on, um, was only that if you want to have the kind of, I, I think that in order to have globalization work in the way that it does, and also to sort of say this or, or address this kind of issue of national security of having these fairly fragile supply chains, you would need to have some kind of buffer in the country, which is what, again, the national stockpile is supposed to be, for example. Um, but that's, that's sort of this question of like investment up front um, and, and you have to basically work within institutions where it, business sense doesn't matter so much. And that's pretty much the government. I think the government did fail us um, a lot <laughs> in this whole pandemic and their response, especially in the beginning. And I think it is, you know, the government's, um, you know, the government's supposed to protect us to to um, keep us sane keep us safe um and i felt like you know they really failed that and i and i feel like they need a our our government needed to invest more in health care or health services something something to uh something to help pre- prevent and protect against this pandemic or a pandemic in general um like i, I don't know the, like trump like everyone can agree that Trump cutting the pandemic team in, in what was it 2018? Uh, I think everyone can agree that that was very stupid, and um, now it's it's costing us. And you know, there's a bunch of things that are costing us. Um, and I don't think um, it's the I don't know. There's so much. There's so much. <laughs> So let's just take a quick vote, um, and it doesn't matter red or blue. I think the government has failed us here. Absolutely, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. What do you guys think? I don't. Th- I don't think that I, I have yes. enough information. <laughs> so I'm. I'm going to stay in the middle. That's interesting. Do you feel that you've been protected, or you're left to protect yourself, or? exposed in any way or I don't know um, if you go to church or temple you know that's I mean, what uh, it just means that I don't what does it mean to feel in the middle like I'm very ignorant in terms of like having the right amount of knowledge on like political stuff it's which is funny because my father works for the Washington Post but um, <laughs> but I just think that <laughs> I think that Maybe this is the optimist in me, but we're all human. So if people make mistakes. Yes, some of them are like very decided and controlled mistakes. Like you know what you're doing and there's a different, things can be black and white, but there's other areas that are shades of gray. Um, and so I never, I don't like confrontation and I don't like pointing the finger and blaming something and putting like a blanket statement on like this whole institution did. I think there's probably a couple of people who, made errors and failed us but i think that there are also people who are probably trying to resolve the issue um so to me like being in the middle i'm looking at it based off of a set of individuals rather than like the whole but i'm curious like do you would you say then that like those individuals 
lead by example or bear some responsibility sort of symbolically in our society, right? Or like, I guess I'm trying to understand, like, like do you see those individuals as having influ- like outsized influence over the rest of us? Or are they just... No, like everybody has people? influence over everyone. So it's just like how they use that influence, which is the the important role that they have. But I would, I, can I ask a follow-up question? I'm not going to give you like a right or a wrong or a yes or a no. Sorry, I'm difficult. No, 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 no I'm... I'm not sure. No, you're good. (laughs) Along these lines, um, have any or all of you taken uh, intro? uh, I I took macro, but in high school. Microeconomics. Um, I took both, but in high school. Uh, The the example that always comes up uh, when you discuss economic problems and the the trade-off, the example is gun versus guns versus butter. Right? If we spend on guns, we can't spend on butter. In this scenario opening the economy the debate is going to be and is number of lives lost health care lives lost health of individuals and society versus the economy money health of the economy um, let, let's talk about that how do you guys feel about that trade and how we balance it how many people should die or be protected versus 30% unemployment, you know, whatever the issues I think are. That, what do you guys think about this? I think that it, it would be different it is the if key issue. unemployment were not essentially a death sentence um, as it goes for a certain amount of time. Not that, I mean, someone can become unemployed and then find work again. So I'm not saying that you are unemployed and immediately pass away. Um, but I do think that the... Um, sort of lack of social safety net in terms of if you are not working, it's incredibly difficult to survive. Um, I think, well, I think, so are you saying I think, that we should I'd open like, the I'd economy like to sort of, I think what I'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to challenge sort of the construction of either we open the economy or we, uh, or we let people, uh, go go on unemployment forever i think perhaps what we should be doing is having a conversation about what is it about the system that we've created because i think too there's there's um but that's not a question that could be answered over the next three months i think it's issue now which is what do we do do we keep the do we keep is it are we in a federal society or where are we do we keep the economy shut down or do we open it um, the, I agree with you that but there's a bigger discussion right now. Don't you think that, that the passing the of the CARES Act, for example, right, this, this massive $2 trillion bailout for the economy, <clears throat> or rather not even really a bailout so much as it is an yeah, like emergency infusion of funds, right? Don't you think that indicates that they're, they're sort of moving the conversation along into less of this question of we have to open the economy, get people working again, um, and more of like, how do we maintain this society that we all agreed to be part of? Right. Isn't that, I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like a year ago you wouldn't have seen an, a, an amount of money like let, that let, being, let's, being pushed into let, the economy. Yes. Let, let's put a pin in that, sure. put in that pin, pin in that question for a minute. Cause I do want to talk about that. Um, so what about the, the other three? What do you think about this trade-off between I, opening the I think that, like, some experts are a little too, like, fatalistic. Well, I mean, actually, let me back up. Like, some people seemingly have, like, 
like no sort of moral sense of protecting like the most amount of people possible and i think that like the attitude that we need to take as a society is like one person who dies from this is one too many right i know that's that's like idealistic and like obviously like more than one person is going to die and has died but like it, it's not to me like it's not like get it over with like let all the high risk people die and then like all you'll sort of weed out everyone who can survive and then we'll all go back to work like i i think that we this is a moment where we need to like really prioritize and and think about like what's like important to us sort of as a civilization and to me that needs to be like like i think noah said like making sure people live and obviously money is tied to livelihood but you don't have livelihood without a life right so i think that's where um, i stand i think like that. the best um thing right now about uh that kind of question is that you kind of see uh, like kind of agreeing with Max like you kind of see that that selfishness that people have in our society of like it's like me versus everyone else which is a bad mentality to have especially right now when we're kind of having to be a group right now um and like you know herd immunity like like everyone uh, do your part so you don't get other people sick and yourself um or you you know the panic buying at the grocery stores like please don't do that um so other people can have stuff too like toilet paper which isn't going to protect you from a virus yeah um but it'll you know it'll help make people's quarantine better if they had toilet, toilet paper. paper wars um so the one of the best examples of this i can think of is the whole um tiktok it's it's a it's like this quarantine or not quarantine it's a this coronavirus like challenge like i don't even know what it's called but it's just basically people mm-hmm. going outside and like licking toilet seats licking you know doorknobs like things that to to basically just like be like oh i'm so um out there i'm giving i'm gonna give myself mm-hmm. the virus um and then potentially you know because these are younger people potentially infect everyone in your household if you you're doing that which is just all it's first of all it's really gross like why are you doing that and second of all um it's it's definitely just like um uh this is about me right now and it's very selfish because it's it's just about them getting their 15 seconds of fame on you know TikTok or whatever and it's and they're not thinking about the other people in their lives or or the people in the world they're just thinking about making a TikTok and and it's just so selfish and and, and oh my god yeah it's stupid <laughs> um i think that this is like this is a question of it's very double edged sword like which came first the chicken of the road like but i would have to i think that i would lean more towards like what max is saying like save lives only because my my reasoning for that is we are in a period in time where we can at least have the economy open digitally if this was happening in the 1940s 1930s 1920 like this could not have like people not going to work actually what there's there's no zoom there's no internet there's no facetime you can't do any of that like you that it just wouldn't happen so i think right now like i don't want to say like we're lucky that this is happening now like ideally this just wouldn't be happening and ideally the answer would be like you know what like both like the economy and saving lives but it's like if we had to pick one it's I think if you look at it as a whole, which 
kind of makes it hypocritical because my last thing I'm like I'm looking at the individual parts <laughs> I'm like if you look at it as society as a whole like we can still kind of have the economy at least in a better place than if you compare it to like a different point in time yes so no with regard to the cares act um if if I understood what you were starting on it was that there's an attempt to provide a safety net that wouldn't have been and even a year ago that wouldn't have been provided was that what you were getting at that's what i was i think it it um indicates a recognition that the current system is inadequate to handle um this kind of impact and i i'm not sure that it it ever should should ne- should we necessarily always be preparing for this kind of thing perhaps, perhaps not but i do think you know there've been all, all sorts of of uh funny memes about this but like andrew yang when he was running for the democratic um presidential nominee was all about universal basic income $1200 a month to every american for the, for i think one could argue exactly this kind of of thing and i think it's interesting how how the conversation around that even on sort of i think pr- moderately progressive folks was that that's kind of like not something we can sustain but i do think it's interesting how a couple months ago you would you know most people i think most moderates moderates and conservatives would laugh you out of the room for suggesting something like this and then within whatever it was a week or so we had this massive stimulus fund including direct payments to americans there's a there's a recognition of the necessity for these kinds of programs even if there's perhaps not the political willingness to in- institutionalize is everybody aware if that makes the cares act is generally yes yeah i've yes. been doing quite a bit of work make a few points and then ask another question so the the cares act provided a few different things um the stimulus check that we talked about earlier and we'll just call it $1200 a person. Um there was another loan program called the uh emergency disaster loan program that typically used for tornadoes and floods. Uh there was a pool of money allocated to that to get money out to uh business people quickly. And there was a, a third piece that they called a PPP, uh, the acronym for Paycheck Protection. And then the fourth they're calling uh, pandemic unemployment assistance which is unemployment insurance available to people who are not typically able to get it right you can get unemployment if you're a double w2 worker but if you're an uber driver or self-employed you can't qualify for unemployment mm-hmm. and the we'll start backwards the pua the unemployment insurance as an example in california we can't even file for it until the 28th of the month there are a million people plus or minus in California that can't even file to receive that yet the ppp the paycheck piece i talked about uh, they ran out of money in that program today the eidl the loan program the original intent was to give $10,000 plus or minus to each business that applied and then a loan behind it well typically the and that's an SBA small business administration loan that agency processes 50,000 loans a year it might even be less than that i've forgotten but they've received hundreds of multiple hundreds of thousands so they're overwhelmed the $10,000 uh has become $1,000 per person 
and the $1,200 checks still haven't gotten out to everybody, barely started to get out. So the point of all of this discussion is fantastic idea, perhaps we can debate it, but very poorly executed. Meaning the safety net, the concept is there, but the money hasn't gotten out to people. So today in the short run, we barely solved the problem putting money in people's pockets so they can survive. The reason I stop on that point is to get to my next one. As we've been speaking, as of 6 p.m. Eastern time, the president uh, released a plan, an 18-page plan, to a map to reopen the economy. There's a big push now to make it happen. Mm -hmm. The practicality, as we each look around our cities, towns, do you think we should go back to work tomorrow? Or in a month? You know, I'll take a stab at this because I actually feel really strongly about this. I feel that, and, and I guess I'll, I'll preface this by saying that there are estimates out there that show if we stop social distancing now, like the, the curve goes back up, obviously, so there's risks associated with going back literally tomorrow. But sort of more to the point, we really need a, a nationwide large-scale testing apparatus. We need antibody testing, and we need it everywhere before we can even think about reopening the country. And I would strongly stand by that. And I, I will sit inside for as long as it takes before they are able to roll that out. Because like I said, that's a calculation I've made about for the greater good. But yeah, I think it's entirely contingent upon testing capacity. And until we have testing capacity, reopening the country is just foolish. What about you, Tori Michelle? I agree with Max. I, I don't think we should be going back to work tomorrow or perhaps in a month. I don't think we should be. I don't think we should be going back to work um, and being around people for a long time, at, at least until like June, honestly, because of the figures that I've seen and the graphs and everything. It's it's then the the amount of social distancing we have done up to this point will be for nothing, would be for, for absolutely no reason, because the numbers would just go back up and everyone would be overwhelmed and everyone still doesn't have ventilators and everyone still doesn't have enough testing kits. So it's just... It's just, it's just, it's so stupid to me to think that, uh, that, you know, this would, that we would be able to go to work tomorrow. And I like, I wouldn't, like me personally, I wouldn't leave my house if everyone decided to go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> I would just be like, you know what, apocalypse bunker, I'm not getting sick. I'm not getting part of this. Um, and um, at least in California, the, the, governor i believe or either the mayor of los angeles or the governor of california one of the two has issued that we're going to be shelter in place until may 15th and then we're going to reevaluate um from then on so i can't even imagine it going back to work tomorrow that's crazy this out if you think this is absolutely the dumbest thing you've ever heard of course not. but like <laughs> but like hypothetically let's say that like i was allergic to peanuts and you made me a sandwich and I said, hey, does this have peanut butter on it? And you say, I don't know. Am I going to eat that sandwich and take that risk if there's peanut butter in there or not? Like, if you truly don't know if it, like, of course not. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat a Twix bar or a Snickers. Like, no, even if there's like a slight hint of it. So, no, the, I don't think that any of us, if it was anybody's kid doing that or anybody's significant other or partner, whomever, parent, you know, you wouldn't risk that for them. So why are you doing it for anyone else? Has my workplace, has the, the places that I'm interacting with on my way to the workplace, 
Has it been tested? Has it been cleaned? Has it been sterilized? Like I want, that's just the thought process that we're moving into now. So um, my answer is no, I would not go back to work. <laughs> so let's expand on that for a minute. I, I think uh, Max, uh, if I understand, you say we have to have you know, serological testing so that we you know, can have an idea of what the population looks like. And in reality, we're not going to do all 330 million people. I may think we should, but we're not. Uh, so there'll be some compromise there. But let's assume we get to a point that's mm-hmm. more or less okay, whatever that is. And it's a month, two, three, four months from now, whatever that is. Are you going to go sit in a the movie theater or get on a plane and go to yeah, Disney I, World I think or that will... crowded bar and have drinks? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think that there's a certain relearning of how to, like, trust like the the public space once again that i think is actually going to be really poignant it's 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 quite literally like a moment where we feel betrayed by our institutions and really preyed upon by this thing we were so ill prepared for and there will be a certain reckoning we'll have to do with do i do i trust the world again and I mean, you know, I, I think I would be a fool if I were to say that, you know, I, I know exactly how I'm going to feel at that time. Like, do I trust this administration? Like, how long am I willing to sit inside? You know, like, who's who's to say? Um, I, I definitely think that there will there will be some risk um, that carries over and some some bad feelings about public spaces. And I think that's something that we're going to have to evaluate sort of on in an individual basis. Like, for example, you know, if I were immunocompromised, I certainly right. would think twice about going outside right so, when so let me, Trump let me ask Michelle, says it is you know, safe right. to do so. You and I yeah. are immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about it? I mean, I, I don't want to go into a movie theater. I don't even want to go back into an office building. Yeah, I'm pretty similar. I... I like if if it's in three months from now it I have to for me it has to be I need to know information like how how low is the curve right like how how low would the curve be um how many people would be active cases at that point um you know I would what are the odds of me even contracting the disease like how eradicated is it at that point you know so there has to be a lot of factors that I would have to look at personally if I were to um, sit in a public space like a movie theater or um, or an or an airplane. I'm terrified of going on a plane right now. I, I was supposed to go home to Miami in May after my graduation and I don't think I'm going to do that because it's just too terrifying for me to even think about. Yeah. What do you think, Tori? Yeah, I just don't, I don't think that I think I would find other ways to, like you said, going to a movie theater or going out in spaces. There, there are other platforms that we can do those things on um which is what we're all adapting to right now but i think that i would take it with everything with a grain of salt you know i would it's kind of like if you go out to the store right now if you absolutely need something you know you wear your mask you you have hand sanitizer you have wipes so i think it's just like this gradual progression of kind of what max is saying like when to trust the world like i don't know i think it's one of those unless you have that situation in front of you um, because we're, we're only a, like, our mind is trying to figure out what's going on right now. So I don't know, um, if I can realistically think about what's going to be happening in, in three months, um, and how we're going to address situations of going out in public. I think that 
So, so there are a couple things. I think, practically speaking, um, as long as I can maintain the kind of social distancing that ensures that I'm going to be okay until we can get uh, antibody tests and so on, I think I'm going to maintain those practices. There's the clear and present danger of coronavirus, but there's also perhaps now the fear of the next one. Um, and I'm honestly not sure how I'm going to respond to that because I'm, I'm lucky in that I'm not immunocompromised, but my father is, you know, people in my life are, I, I certainly won't be going to movie theaters anytime yeah. soon. Um, and I want to drill down, but I don't know for how long. Second. So as a, a immunocompromised person, I won't, their behaviors are things that I won't do until I can be vaccinated doesn't mean the society won't open but for me you know is it a one if the odds are there's one in a thousand chance that i catch it and if i catch it it may not be good or if it's one in ten thousand you know i personally i don't think i can find a number that says eh, you know what i'm gonna go hang out in that crowded bar and have a few beers and you know and do that i i, I just can't get there myself you know, with that in mind my point of view, and just I'll, I'll ask it again broadly, is um, given that we each have a range of what we're willing to do, do you think that there is going to be a massive change in behavior? I hope so. Um, I don't know if there will be, because, you know, there's still people who aren't, who don't, who aren't taking this seriously. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the people who are taking this seriously will outnumber the people who aren't and you know the things will change afterwards and when when this quarantine is over i feel like things will go like people will start engaging in the things they used to do and everything slowly um and yeah that's all i can hope for is that people kind of change hope everyone washes their hands as we wind down is there any issue or question that you guys would like to raise or you know, things that you're thinking about that I'm not. Earlier you said that you'd place yourself a little more on the pessimistic side of the pessimist-optimist scale. Um, you asked just now about the question of large-scale change. I think that information distribution has become so politically polarized that just as a, as a function of like news distribution and entertainment sort of things, I think what's going to happen personally, and this is perhaps a pessimistic view, is that people who lean progressive-ish, um, right, generally speaking, are going to regard this as really quite impactful and may have that kind of long-lasting change. Whereas I think folks who lean conservative, sort of Fox News, OAN types, are going to, as quickly as possible, conveniently forget this. Or, or minimize kind of its impact. Say, you know, once, once sort of the immediate danger has passed, say, oh, that wasn't really so bad. Mm. And I'm curious about your and, and our, my, my, fellow, my fellow peers. Um, I'm interested in, in whether or not you, you would agree with me that that is, I, with that sort of picture of the um, future. I actually, or if you think it's going to be something pretty, different. I, I agree with that because I, I've seen it. I, I see it. Um, I don't want to, like, name names of people in my life but like i've definitely noticed you know specific people in my life who you know are conservative 
in their views that um, aren't taking this as seriously as they should. Um, and maybe that's because they only get their news from one specific thing, like Fox News. Um, and, you know, um, there's, I think that rings true for a lot of people, you know, that that follow that same kind of information, information from one place, you know, that is notorious for downplaying a lot of things. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I, I totally agree and see that. Whereas, like, you know, the progressives in my life are very, you know, taking this seriously, taking the precautions, um, hoping for change after this. You know, it's, it's, I could definitely see that 100%. I, I also would recommend that, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but, or if anyone listening has, but there's a, there's a piece called Prepare for the yes. Ultimate Gaslighting. It's an op-ed that yes. I think was posted on Medium, but it's really been going, like, super viral. And it basically talks about um, how we are about to see after the conclusion of this virus, if you want to call it the conclusion, like the ultimate partnership between the government and basically like capitalism yeah. between, you know, corporations who want to restart the economy to put a big fat, you know, dollar bandaid on this collective trauma we've experienced. And like Noah said, and, and people have said, you know, make us feel like this was really just a blip. It wasn't a problem. We don't really need the systemic change. This is really showing us we do. Um, so I, I won't plagiarize or, or regurgitate that piece. We should totally read it. What was I it called again? Like, think about that as we move forward. Okay. It's called uh, Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting. Oh, that's a great like title. That. Yeah. <laughs> if we accept the premise that there is some divide, uh, conservative, liberal, red versus blue, you know, whatever it might be. And, and I think there's some evidence of that. What happens when the reddest of the red electoral district and the town church of 140 people on Sunday go regularly, and then on the following Saturday, you know, 100 people are infected and they start having deaths? I would argue that it's not personal until it's right. personal. But I'm interested in your thoughts. Uh, I would hope that at that point they would, um, you know, stop the gatherings and, you know, think, really think about it. And, you know, since they have it, they're seeing it, they see it firsthand. They can, you know, be advocates for, hey, please stay home. This is rough. I've, that's just because I'm an optimist and I would like people to do the best they can. And I, I now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think it's like a red versus blue thing. I think it's more of like... um people with a lot of information versus people with minimal information is what it comes down to. I think it also um, correlates mm -hmm. with folks' trust of officials. I think people who people who are like, see a story and say, yes, this is true information that I agree with and will take as fact, I think are more likely to be afraid, even if it's not in their community. Like, for example, where I am, there's very, very few infections, I think almost no, if any, deaths. So if you go just by sort of like, you know, what I see is what I know, I would be like, this is a hoax. What are you talking about? There is no disease. But obviously I, I see these numbers and I believe in these numbers and I understand, okay, I personally am not dead from coronavirus, but many people are, and that this is very serious. I think that um, the more skeptical you are of those numbers, the less likely um, you are to think that's happening. So I, I don't know. I think to your to your point about it's not personal till it's personal. 
I think there's an aspect of that where it's all well and good to post an image of yourself on Instagram with 40 other people saying, you know, haha, look at all you losers inside believing this garbage. And then, you know, if tragedy strikes, I think that it becomes much harder to keep laughing. Tori, what are you seeing in, in the Midwest? I'm thinking, like, I'm not seeing people going out and, you know, posting pictures with a bunch of people or they are keeping social distancing and doing um, like the six foot thing and whatnot and taking precautions. I don't know. I, I agree with the, it's not personal until it's personal. Cause what I, what I do. So we've kind of talked about yesterday in our like independent talk and then kind of brought it up today in, um, in nine 11 in the sense of like, you know, they hit the the towers and like immediately right there, like 3000 people dead. And I went to a high school with 5000 kids. Um, so to me, I always am like, that's over half of the student population right there. Like I always like compare it to something that I know. Um, and that's just, and I try and do that even in a situation where like, even if I don't know these people, I didn't know anyone in that situation in 9-11, but it still is, like, something that I tr- I try and bring a little bit of, like, my, I guess, humanity to it. And so, where I don't just turn a blind eye until it actually affects me. Um, but everyone in the Midwest so far, um, because, like, again, like I said, my family's in Indiana. I'm in Ohio. Um, I think everyone's taking it as seriously as they can. Well, there, there were pictures today, yesterday, of a large group in Michigan that blocked the roads you know, in protest. We want to go back to work. And those demonstrations are starting to pop up around the country. So I'd say we're, we're in the midst of this debate and discussion. And, and uh, I think it's going to be on your shoulders, your generation, to you know, really kind of lead by example because it's, uh, you know, you're the ones that are going to be around. Hopefully. What's the best thing, the best memory, the best thing that's happened in the last year? In the last year? Ooh. I think, honestly, when I... I'm going to even say, I'm going to take it when I finally did my, my defense and, um, and they called me and they were like, cause I had to do it over zoom. Um, and they, my committee had to call me back and they were like, Tori, mm-hmm. like you passed because I just, after that, I hung up the phone and I just started crying to myself. Cause I was like, I think there's a lot of moments in life where you can point to somebody and be like, Oh, I'm so proud of you for this thing. But there's not a lot of moments people can look at internally and say I'm proud of myself I just like had that moment it was good to just like have that achievement for myself so that was a really good moment in the past year I think that's a fantastic story and something to hold on to it was great it was just it kind of sucked because I was alone (laughs) like I was like I I can't go celebrate like I'm just like here now (laughs)